Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So, for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com. He thought, I've shot gunshots in this house. This is a city neighborhood. Houses are all close to each other. And I think his words, it's along the lines of, I don't know what the fuck happened, but nobody called the cops. How can nobody fucking call the cops? I'm Yardley. And I'm Zibby. And we're fascinated by true crime. So we invited our friends, detectives Dan and Dave, to sit down with us and share their most interesting cases. I'm Dan. And I'm Dave. We're identical twins. And we're detectives in small town USA. Dave investigates sex crimes and child abuse. Dan investigates violent crimes. And together, we've worked on hundreds of cases, including assaults, robberies, murders, burglaries, sex abuse, and child abuse. Names, locations, and certain details of these cases have been altered to protect the privacy of the victims and their families. In the early summer of 2015, our subject, James, a man in his mid-30s, split from his wife of 12 years and left their home and two children in another state. He went to live with his retired parents, Catherine and Roger, in their single-level home on a quiet street in small-town USA. James was well-educated. He had played football and made the all-state team in high school. According to family members, his future held great promise. However, at some point as an adult, he became addicted to heroin, and his promising life became a desperate downward spiral. James's parents, Catherine and Roger, were close to their extended family and spoke to them weekly. They were also active in their church, and Catherine especially was well-liked by their neighbors. However, As soon as James moved into the house, their quiet life was completely disrupted. Roger and James fought regularly and often violently. It was common knowledge in the neighborhood that Roger considered his son a slacker for not having a job and was unsympathetic to his drug habit. He wanted his son out. Catherine did her best to keep the peace But Roger's temper was intimidating, and she felt helpless every time her husband and son went toe-to-toe. One June afternoon, police received a call from Catherine's cousin, who lived in another state. He was concerned that, despite making multiple attempts to reach her, he hadn't heard back from her in two weeks. This wasn't normal for them, as they talked regularly. On June 15th, Police were dispatched to check on Catherine and Roger at their home. There they found a typed note on the front door which read, 
Catherine and Roger are away on vacation and will be back on June 16th. Their son, James, is house-sitting. Officers knocked on the door in an attempt to contact James, but they were unsuccessful. Six days later, police went back to Catherine and Roger's home because the cousins still hadn't heard from her. This time, a different typed note was on the front door. It read, Catherine and Roger had to leave again due to a family emergency. Catherine's phone is not working. Please leave any urgent messages with her son, James, while he is house-sitting. If no answer, please leave a note at the door. The officers went to the neighbor's house and asked them to please contact police if they saw anyone coming and going from Roger and Catherine's home. Less than an hour later, the neighbors actually did call the police and said they just saw James leave and come back to the house. An officer was dispatched to the residence once again and knocked on the door but got no answer. As he walked around the house, he noticed that there was a lock on the outside gate that hadn't been there before and the blinds were moving as though someone was peering through them. The officer said he got a creepy feeling. He called for additional units and started backing away from the house. At the same time, 911 dispatchers were receiving a call from the occupant inside the residence asking for a hostage negotiator. 911, what's the address of the emergency? Um, well, what I'd like you guys to do is to stop banging on the house, and I'll give you the information that you need, okay? If you have a hostage negotiator, I can speak to please. Um, this could go, um, this could go real easy or it could go real bad. Okay, are I just you... Wanted, I just want it to go real easy, and I think, I think we can make it out of this, and I think it'll be okay. Do you understand? I don't... I understand. I, I don't want people to be hurt. You don't want anyone to get hurt? Okay, we don't want anyone to get hurt either. Are you able to tell me what address we're talking about? Not right now, but, I mean, you're going to figure it out in a second. Anyway, but I don't have much time. How, how am I going to figure it out? Can you help me? Radio to all the police officers in the area that are... Um, banging on people's houses and tell them to just back off for a while. You know, just give me, just give me, just give me, you know, five minutes to figure this out. Okay. What's your name? Um, what would you like to call me? What, what do you, what is your given name? What do you go by? Well, I can tell you right now, I do not feel so good. You don't feel so good? No, I don't feel so good. I, I know death is close. You, death you is think close death is close? But, uh, Is it going to be caused by you? Yeah. But, um, you know, that doesn't mean anybody else has to get hurt. I understand. Okay, that's so, great. We don't want anyone else to get hurt. I'm glad. I'm really glad anybody else to get hurt. Can so, you tell me a little bit more about how we got to where you are today? Well, are you there? Did I lose you? Hello? 
And that's when we got called out there. So how do you approach this call? It now sounds like you may possibly have hostages in the house. If he's saying, I don't want anybody else to get hurt, so tell the cops to go away. What's the protocol? Get the place contained again. Get the SWAT team start to incrementally get in position with what we can and try to establish contact with him at that time. Do you know he has weapons or? Um, we didn't really know that at this point. We, we assumed that he does, but we didn't know for sure if he did and how many he had. How many of you show up to this call? There's a patrol response first. I see. So there's already a handful of guys there from patrol trying to sort through things. And then I'd say initially four or five detectives start showing up and SWAT members shortly after that. Yeah, I remember listening to the radio and you can hear what's being relayed to the patrol officer, what he's relaying to the dispatcher. And I mean, it just sounds alarming. The 911 call seems to end really abruptly. Does somebody else get on the phone with him after that? No, it was a quick conversation. The officer or officers that had responded initially to the uh, welfare check days prior were going back and checking. And that day, as things started to just not sound very good on the radio, and neighbors had, well, I saw this. I saw the son this morning or yesterday taking the trash out. The car he drives is right there in the driveway. So I headed up to that neighborhood along with other officers, and the critical part was when he called. Clearly, he was in the house. When James called. Yeah, when James called. And I don't know why. what triggered him. He had been successful in kind of thwarting our efforts. But now, all of a sudden, he's waving a big red flag with this phone call to the 911 dispatcher. I think you get like the mounting month's worth of paranoia, and it builds and builds to the point where you're like, they haven't come for me yet, but they keep knocking on the door. So if James had been thwarting the police for weeks, presumably the neighbors would have noticed something. I know it was a close-knit neighborhood. I know that Catherine and Roger were friendly with their neighbors. What was the intel from them? The neighbor had seen James outside but had not seen the parents for a long time, and the parents' cars were both there. Mm-hmm. and they hadn't been leaving. So when I got out to the scene, the patrol sergeant, who was also one of our negotiators, was out there, and he called me out there originally to kind of assess the thing. And we continued to try to get a hold of James, and I don't think we were ever successful. And at that point, knowing what we knew from the neighbors and knowing what we knew who was probably there, it started the ball rolling where we needed to intervene somehow and find out who was in the house and what their condition was. You show up as head of SWAT at that point? Well, I was actually the detective sergeant. And I think that right after I hear what I hear and I understand that everything that shows that they should be there is there, vehicles and everything else, and trash being taken out. This ended up being kind of a hybrid SWAT, hybrid detective thing. We didn't have the whole team out there for this because it was really an unknown. And the reason we had SWAT team personnel is because if we did have to make an entry in there and go search... Um, I wanted those. I wanted a cohesive unit to do that. So, that's, so that was your call. Yeah. So take us through that. So when we exhaust every other form, we actually used a loud hailer. Tried to get him to come to the door. A loud hailer. I need one of those. Yeah. And we were getting no response from the house. The house is completely buttoned up. You couldn't see it. There's curtains were all pulled. And this is a summer. It was a hot day. It was really hot out that day. And. We get everybody there. We get enough people to gear it up. And then that's when I assess how we're going to do this. And this house was set up to where the front main entrance door was kind of centered in the middle of the house. And then there was a side man door on this 
attached garage. A man door. Like the, yeah, a man door. A door only men go through. <laughs> well, we had information too that when James was last seen, he was coming out that door. I got people covering that door. I had people covering the back of the house. And myself and another SWAT team member went up to the front door to see if the door was locked, in fact, or, and it was, and everything was dark, and there was a window on it. You couldn't see anything in there. The house inside was pretty dark still. Knocked on the door and then retreated back to the end of the alcove to see if anyone actually would come, and nobody came. So at that point, we're going to make entry for a community caretaking welfare check to make sure that everyone's okay in there. And it was my decision to enter the man door on the garage because it started at one end of the house and we could clear the house systematically rather than go in the middle of the house where you have problems on both sides of you instantly. So we forced the door open at that point and Do you do that by kicking it with your foot or is there something We used a one of our door key devices. A RAM. A RAM. Mm -hmm. A door you call, yeah. I like that you call that a door key device. Yeah. <laughs> Not really a key at all. It fits it? all doors. Sorry, when the door opened, we were instantly in contact with James, who was seated on the floor. He had a rifle across his lap and a pistol next to him, and he was bleeding, and he seemed to be, like, out of it, totally out of it. We gave him commands to come out, to come out, to come out, and he just was pretty unresponsive. He was sitting up still. And finally, we reached up and secured the rifle, grabbed him by the feet, and jerked him out of the house. Secured him in handcuffs. He had self-inflicted wounds on his wrists. There was drug paraphernalia right where he was. Is that like a suicide attempt? Yeah. Both the guns were loaded. One was a rifle, one was a pistol. There was a gun safe right next to where he was. And also right next to where he was was a large, about a six and a half foot freezer sitting there. Why was he unresponsive after threatening to not wanting anyone else to get hurt inside? I think between the time that he made the threat and the time we entered, he had gone and used heroin and other drugs and cut himself and was trying to basically check out. So he was on the nod. He just was pretty unresponsive as far as his physical abilities to pick up anything was pretty bad. And when we got him out, we instantly asked him, where's your parents? And he just kept saying, I remember him just saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And because of his need for medical attention, we had him cleared with the medics. And at that point, we're going to search the house for mom and dad. We called out, called out, nobody came. And I remember as soon as we started to search, going through the garage slash shop area that we were in, one of my guys behind me, I hear him say, Sarge, and he had lifted up the freezer, and I see a foot sticking out of a sleeping bag, and I just said, okay, well, shut up, let's clear the house. I looked down and saw it appeared to be just one person in there. In the freezer? In the freezer, yes, and obviously had been there for some time. And so at that point, we clear the whole house. And clear the house means... We go room to room looking for additional victims. So that's the immediate call to action. As soon as you see a dead body in the freezer, now you're on the hunt for whether there are other victims in the house who may need immediate care. Yeah, unfortunately, there's nothing we can do for the already deceased person. Uh, we don't know without clearing the house if there's another person in a back room who's bleeding out, tied up, etc., where we need to get them out of the house and to the hospital. And was there anybody else? We didn't find anyone else in the house. Because that welfare check was for two people. Correct. It's not till we come back and look again in the freezer that we realize that there's two people stacked on top of each other in there who turned out to be Catherine and Roger. Oh, my. Hey, folks. Detective Dave here. 
Let me tell you about Simply Safe, the home security system that I trust to keep my family safe. I depend on Simply Safe to provide me and my loved ones with 360 degree coverage of my property and valuables. I love the variety of monitoring sensors available with Simply Safe Home Security. You get a glass break sensor, which in my experience is one of the most effective tools of detecting a break in. In addition, Simply Safe offers motion sensors, entry sensors, sirens, and flood and fire detection. With Simply Safe Home Security, I have the flexibility to use keypads at multiple entries at my house. This option is especially important to me and my family. I can provide access to people I trust and limit having multiple keys outside of my control, all at the push of a button via the Simply Safe app. It comes with a variety of cameras for indoors and outdoors. And best of all, Simply Safe is backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for less than $1 a day. It gives me peace of mind knowing I can leave the house, I can leave town, I can even leave the country, and I know my home is simply safe. The mobile app integration makes it so easy to make sure everything's in place in real time. I check it every day when I'm away from home. Simply Safe is the best. U.S. News and World Report named Simply Safe Best Home Security Systems 2024, and Newsweek ranked it Best Customer Service in Home Security. With Simply Safe, there are no contracts. And if you're not happy with the service or the product, they have a 60 day money back guarantee. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind. We want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with Fast Protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/slash smalltown. That's simplysafe.com/slash smalltown. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Hey, Small Town fam, it's Yardley. It's gonna be summer soon, so the potential for stinky pits is imminent. That's why I really love Lumi. I'm obsessed with their sweat control, cream deodorant. I think I've said this so many times, but honest to God, I never thought I'd use a cream deodorant because they're sloppy and gloppy and sticky and bleh. But Lumi isn't any of those things. It dries quickly, it's never sticky, and it doesn't leave any white streaks on my dark clothing. So all of those things are a win for me. If you're not familiar with Lumi, let me tell you a few things. Six years ago, an OBGYN invented her game-changing whole body deodorant, and now it has over 300,000 five-star reviews from people like me. Lumi is baking soda-free, paraben-free, and pH balanced, so it's safe for your pits and your bits, which means you can use it below the belt. They have a lovely variety of fresh, bright scents like clean tangerine, my favorite, lavender sage, or toasted coconut. And the secret to Lumi's success is it's formulated and powered by mandelic acid. That's how it stops odor before it starts. So, small town fam, Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, my fave, and two free products of your choice, like mini body wash or deodorant wipes, and free shipping. And on top of that, as a special offer for listeners, new customers get 15% off all Lumi products with our exclusive code, which is small town. And if you combine the 15% off with the already discounted starter pack, that equals over 40% off the starter pack. So use code small town for 15% off your first purchase at lumideodorant.com. That's code small town at L-U-M-E deodorant.com. Do it.
Hey, small town fam, it's Yardley. I want to talk about Pros. Pros is the custom hair and skin beauty brand where you get on their website, answer a bunch of questions about where you live and how old you are and what kind of hair you have, what kind of hair you want to have. And then from millions of possible formulas, they create a formula just for you. So I'm lucky I have a lot of hair. Most days, my hair is the boss of me. So I need shampoo and conditioner that gets my hair to calm down a little bit. So I've been using Pros for a while, and one of my favorite things about it is you can choose your scent. They have a review and refine tool, which learns from my feedback and then adjusts the formula. Also, Pros is a certified B Corp. It's cruelty-free, and it's the first and only carbon-neutral custom beauty brand. So it's not only better for you, it's better for the planet. So, small town fam, Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash town. That's right. You get your free consultation and then 50% off at pros.com slash town. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash town. Do it. What's happening while you're clearing the rest of the house? Are the other officers looking in the freezer? No. At that point, once we do that, once we realize there's been an obvious homicide, we clear out the house and start writing a search warrant. Because we need a search warrant to search it because James lives there and he has an expectation of privacy. Oh, my. So other than looking for his parents on a caretaking situation where maybe they're still alive— and we can save their lives, after we determine that they're dead, we can't search any farther because of his Even rights. though you've seen a foot in the freezer, you can't assume that you can go and see if there's anything else in the freezer. No, as long as it's clear that both people are deceased, then we have to stop or we could violate James's rights. Really? Yes. That's interesting. Meanwhile, George, where were you in all of this? So I'd gotten called out by Sergeant Dave, and I was part of the entry team that went in through that uh, pedestrian door alongside the garage. And I was the first one into that hallway. And when we came across him, just like he was described, he was sitting there, bloody needles on the floor, drug paraphernalia next to him, a couple guns, conscious but not responding to our orders to show us his hands and step away from the gun. So we drug him out to the driveway area. And I went back inside. I had handcuffed James and then left him with an officer in the driveway. We're short on people, really, at this point. They'd have a, a full team of people to go through. So I went back in and assisted with clearing the house to ensure that there was nobody else in there that was needing medical attention or help. And then I came back outside. It was obvious, based on the self-inflicted cuts to James's wrist, that he needed some medical attention. Had he done a fair job of trying to off himself, or was this sort of— um, I think— I think he made a, a genuine effort. He later, when I spoke with him, articulated as much. He, he had tried to, but I think the heroin affected it. It really slowed him down and made him groggy. And when I talked to him later, he ended up telling me he tried to shoot himself in the head and wanted to know if he actually did it. And he said, I slipped my wrist. I tried to shoot myself in the head. Did I do it? And it's the effects of heroin right there. 
You rode with him in the ambulance, did you not? Yeah, I got in the ambulance with him and we went to the hospital in town. And my role at that point was to find out as much as I could about what had happened. Other investigators remained at the scene to secure the residence, to prepare for a search. Detective Don was going to be writing the search warrant so we can properly get in the residence. It's helpful to have more information, as much information as possible. So I was going to try to get that information from James and relay that to Detective Don so he can include that in the search warrant. And did you? I did. It took a while. We got to the hospital, and James was pretty groggy. The heroin effects were, were getting to him. They needed to tend to his medical needs. So I sat bedside with him for the next four or five hours at that point. I think about four hours later, he began talking some more. I think we just started chatting initially. James, you know who I am. Do you know why we're here? Do you know what today is? Trying to make sure he was aware of what's happening. I have a question. Mm-hmm. When you were in the hospital with him, were you able to record your conversation with him? Or were you taking notes? Are you even allowed to record him? I'm allowed to. I wasn't prepared. to. I didn't have an audio recorder with me. I had gone to the house with the task of this being a possible SWAT situation and resolving this, prepared to be out there for a long time, maybe entering the house, rescuing a hostage or two. That was our initial plan. I didn't have any of that equipment with me. I hopped in the ambulance and rode there. So I had a notepad. I wrote notes furiously as he's talking to me. Was that stressful for you? Like, were you thinking... Fuck, I wish I had an audio recorder. Yeah, absolutely I was. Some of the things he said, it would have been very powerful to have. So now I keep my digital recorder in my car. (laughs) Fair enough. It's one of those lessons you learn of who knows. But your written notes would have been considered credible? Yes. And on top of that, nursing staff remained with me in the room the whole time. And I had asked them for permission to talk to him. His medical care needs to come first in that hospital setting. From a legal standpoint, I can't interfere with his medical care. But throughout the time I was there, I think I remained there until the next morning, till 6 in the morning the next day. And I had asked the nurses, hey, listen to what he's saying. And I had talked to him and said, hey, just in case this goes to trial, I'm recording your names. And I'd really like to have you as a witness to these conversations, if at all possible. Or at least be able to testify that you saw me writing down notes furiously as he's talking to me. Or try to remember a few key statements he made. And even ask the paramedics on the way over. I mean, just the legal world we live in now. Everything's challenged. Miranda writes. So when I'm in the ambulance, I read him as Miranda writes. Little card I have in my wallet. I read it from the card, and I asked two paramedics in the ambulance, do you guys listen to this and be a witness that I did this? Everything's questioned these days in law, as it should be. People are innocent and less proven guilty. So we got to protect that. But it helps if we can come in there with overwhelming evidence to show we did it the right way, whether it's taking notes or people listening or watching. We got to do it the right way. And fortunately, everybody was more than willing. I'll be a witness to that or I'll testify if you need me to. And they're really helpful. That's the small community aspect of it right there. We see these people, this medical staff on a regular basis. We bring people into the ERs and they get to know us and see us. And yeah, to build that relationship with them, it's good. So you can't administer something like an EpiPen shot to knock him out of his heroin days? Well, as a matter of fact, they later did. Um, Not immediately. Initially, he just started talking, and I think the conversation kept him awake for a while. Eventually, they gave him some Narcan to counteract the heroin. But they're putting IV fluids in him. They're making sure everything else is stable with him before they give him that Narcan. They don't want to give it right away if they didn't have to. So did you get any kind of information from him or, or? Yeah, it slowly began to develop. It was just little by little. Because he was groggy or because he didn't remember or he didn't want to tell you? Honestly, it's probably a little bit of all three. He was groggy initially, but once we began conversing and just establishing a conversation back and forth, making sure he knew what was going on and talking, I think you could see the wheels turning. And I think there was some hesitancy about immediately talking about what happened. 
so we already get into who's at the house, and he basically would say statements like, I made a big mistake, I messed up bad. And I think the first person he admitted to killing was his dad, and then later went into how he killed his mom. Tell us. He had been in an argument with his dad. As family members and even neighbors had told us, they didn't have a great relationship. He said at one point he and his dad were arguing about immigration. and Immigration? Just politics. Oh. And I think that was a little bit of a cop-out. I think I was you know, trying to throw an excuse up about why they're arguing. I think they argue about anything and everything. I know there was financial issues. They were trying to help him with money. And to a certain extent, he wanted more money. And they weren't willing to give him all that money. They realized, hey, you're a grown adult. Act like it. And we're not going to support you your whole life. And that was the source of a lot of arguments between he and his dad. He would admit to as much. But he said at one point he got mad and he referred to his gun. He had a Glock 9. And he got it out, and he was gesturing with it and arguing and yelling at mom and dad. And in the house, there's a if you go down the hallway, there's bedrooms on either end. Mom's room is on one side. And on the other side was a bedroom that had been kind of turned into a second living room. I wouldn't quite call it a man cave, but a place where dad can go and mom can sit in the living room and watch something, and dad can go in this other room and watch his sports or games or whatever he did. James referred to it as dad's living room. And he was yelling at dad, arguing with him, and he'd pointed the gun down the hallway James initially said mom walked out of her bedroom and he had pulled the trigger and shot her in the chest and killed her. Oh my God, just like that. Jeez. He initially tried to really make it sound like that was just an accident. He was just pointing the gun, happened to be pointing the gun down the hallway and mom just happened to walk out and he shot her. He said this really got dad's attention and dad yelled out to him, you know, what the hell's going on out there? Something along that line. And in his mind, he said, well, at this point, dad knows I killed mom. I got to kill him too. Oh my. So he walked down the hallway and confronted dad in the bedroom area nearby the doorway. And dad was like, what happened? And he pointed his gun at dad on purpose and shot his father. Wow. Oh, my God. And initially, I think a statement to him is, I blew half his arm off. And keep in mind, I'm at the hospital. I really don't know anything about the scene. You don't even know about the freezer at this point. I knew about the freezer. Oh, you did? I knew that a body had been seen in the freezer, but I didn't know how many. Didn't know the condition of the house. Um... Or the injuries at that point. And the autopsy would later give some information that would corroborate what James told me about blowing his arm off. So he did blow his arm off. He knocked a good chunk of flesh off his arm and did damage his arm pretty well. Oh. But he said Dad was still alive at that point. I think his statement is along the lines, well, now i got to finish him. i got to kill him, make sure he's dead now. And he walked up to his dad and pointed the gun at his head and shot him in the head. And his word rang, I blew his head off. So we're trying to piece together when this happened. I'm asking him, hey, do you know what day it is? When did this happen? And he had a rough estimate about what day it was. It was like the 25th of the month that we were talking. I said, when did all this happen? He goes, 31st. I killed my dad on the 31st. So we're talking about 26 days prior he had committed these murders. So we're going back talking about what happened after you killed mom and dad. I believe first thing he did was he thought, I've shot gunshots in this house. This is a city neighborhood. Houses are all close to each other. And I think his words, it's along the lines of, I don't know what the fuck happened, but nobody called the cops. How can nobody fucking call the cops? And he was just shocked that the police weren't called. Because nobody had heard the gunshots? Is that what he means? Yeah, because he thought for sure somebody would hear the gunshots. So in preparation for the police coming, he went around the house and gathered up several guns and all the ammunition he could find. Dad owned a couple of guns, so he gathered those up. He gathered all the ammunition down towards the bedroom, and his words, he was prepared for a standoff with the police, and he was going to shoot it out with the police. So he admits to not only killing his parents, but then saying, my plan was to kill as many police as possible as well. Yes, and he waited and waited, and no police showed up. 
And a couple of days went by, no police. He waited for a couple of days? I don't think he waited for a couple of days. He waited for a while, but I think he was prepared over the next couple of days. And finally, after a couple of days passed, he said, I guess the cops aren't coming. I'm going to go back to using my heroin and hanging out in the house. And what has happened to the bodies? Because it's summer. It seems smelly. That's part of the problem. Yeah, that's exactly what he dealt with next. After them stinking up the house for a while and making a general mess, I think it was a wood floor if I remember right, he'd come in, there's blood all over the floor. He wanted to clean them up. So he drugged the bodies out to the garage and cleaned up the surface area of the floor where the bodies had been and left the bodies in the garage for at least a few days. Oh, my some of the wording he used, I remember some of it, is he remembered what mom and dad's bodies looked like with all the gunshot wounds and all the blood coming out. And he said, I didn't want them to look like a Disneyland attraction. So I cleaned up their wounds. What part of that looks like a Disneyland attraction? I've only been to Disneyland once. I don't remember any attractions looking remotely as looking grotesque as that like could have that. been. How did you interpret that? What, what did he mean by that? <laughs> It was, I think, just describing a grotesque scene of just bizarreness. Because he, he was afraid, you know, those photos would be taken, be all over the news, and that people would just... That would be the image of mom and dad glorified. to him. I see. I think the lasting image for him in his mind was that's, his, that's how he's going to remember his mom and dad. And if anybody else saw them, whether it be the police taking crime scene photos, he didn't want them looking like this grotesque attraction. So he decided he was going to clean out their wounds. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com He didn't go into much of a description, and I didn't know at the time what to ask about how he cleaned out the wounds. But he said he cleaned them up. He ended up shaving their heads and cleaning as much blood up as possible. And then he said the bodies started to stink. The whole house started to stink up, and it couldn't just be contained to the garage, even though he drug them out there thinking that would take care of it. And he needed to do something else. And he had heard that you could put it in a freezer, and that will take care of the smell. So, uh, Don, you want to jump in from here? Well, I talked to the salesman that sold him the freezer. The salesman remembered that he wanted a large freezer, and he explained to him that chest freezers were the larger models, and he remembered even commenting laughingly that this freezer that he pointed out to him was big enough you could put a body in this freezer. It's so big. The salesman did? The salesman did. Wasn't it marketed as a two-body freezer, actually, on the sales floor, if I remember right? Yes. No way. Right. And so James is paranoid already. He hears this guy refer to the refrigerator as a two-body freezer, and he's like offended and appalled. And why would you say something like that, thinking they're on to me? And this guy's like, oh, it's just marketing thing. Like, it's big enough to fit two bodies in. Yeah, the salesman was like, geez, I remember now I mentioned that, and I had no idea at the time. What he remembers about that particular customer is that he took such offense to the comment it is a bizarre assessment of how big your freezer is. Although one, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt and think he's thinking like deer. Probably. And George, didn't he prep these bodies in a very specific manner? Well, he just said he used paper towels and duct tape. 
to clean up the bodies and then wrapped them in duct tape and put them in the freezer. So I'm assuming that's just what he did to keep the blood from leaking in the freezer. He packed their wounds with paper towels and their orifices. Every orifice? Both their anuses were packed with paper towels because they were leaking quite a bit. And mom's vagina was also packed with probably about a half roll of paper towels. Oh my. Um, And it was bizarre because we're doing the autopsy looking for the wounds and the medical examiner sees this paper towel and it was not unlike a magician pulling handkerchiefs out of his sleeve when he began pulling the paper towels. I, I'm sorry. It just kept going. It's just, it was disgusting, but it kept coming out and coming out and coming out. And there was at least a half or paper towels in both mom's vagina and anus as well as dad's anus. Wow. And it, it was bizarre, to say the least. How much time do you think it took him to prepare his parents' A couple bodies? days, I think. I think a good, especially after shaving their heads, wiping other blood, packing every orifice possible to make sure they didn't leak their mouths, their noses. Eyes? No, not the eyes. Q-tips in the ears, that's what struck me. I was like, man, he really had to jam those down there because they were so far down. Everything he could think of. I don't know if he anticipated using that freezer again later after removing the bodies and didn't want bodily fluids in there or what. I really think it had something. I think he was planning on getting those bodies out of there. So we clearly establish he's the one that shot and killed both mom and dad. He put them in the freezer. So I give the information to Detective Don. They process the scene. They recover the bodies from the freezer. The freezer had been on. The bodies are very frozen. They've been in there long enough to get through a really deep freeze. So as part of the crime scene processing, I think we were out there for a couple days, two to three days processing it. In addition to collecting blood, we removed the bodies and they're sent over to the morgue. How long does it take if you're in a deep freeze to thaw out? It ended up taking about six days. Oh. And I didn't know what to expect. So I went to the morgue the next day for the autopsy. And where we work, the officer or detectives go to the autopsy and watch. We don't participate necessarily in doing much of the examination. But the medical examiner, I guess a forensic pathologist, describes as he's doing the work what he's evaluating, what he's seeing. We know that Detective Dan has an aversion to bone saws. Do you have a particular aversion to something? Well, I don't know if aversion is the right word, but it is a horrible noise. And it's when the time comes to actually do the removal of the skull cap, I step out of the out of the area a little bit and make sure I'm away from that scene. I'm going to step out while you just get through this part of the story. But the autopsy part itself is kind of interesting in a lot of cases. You learn a little bit about injury, causation of death, what to expect on certain injuries. In this case, it was about patients. We go back every day to check and see if the bodies were thawed enough to actually perform the autopsy. Kind of like waiting for the Thanksgiving turkey to defrost. (laughs) No. That's a horrible analogy. Why do you have to be present for the actual process? Are you taking notes? I mean, they talk you through it. Are you recording that? Why do you have to be there? General knowledge. When I write my reports to articulate an actual crime occurred, There's nothing more powerful when you're on a witness stand than be able to describe firsthand what you observed, whether it's the scene itself, the criminal act being performed, or the result of that criminal act. And They also turn over evidence to us, like bullets, slugs. We take that evidence. Uh, Okay. All the clothes, anything like that. The pathologist writes his own report, dictates, I should say. He speaks in a recorder and then writes a report later. Once we were unwrapped the duct tape and the cloth away from the bodies. Where was the duct tape? Like all over the bodies? The whole face was covered. Um, both faces? Both faces were completely wrapped in towels and duct tape. As if? I think he couldn't look at their faces anymore. I think it got to him. I recall hearing that amongst all the other ways that he prepared his parents' dead bodies for the freezer, he also put their passports or identification cards 
with them, packed in with them. Is that correct? Yeah, and I think that's because he had intended on dumping the bodies somewhere rurally, uh, down into a river, the wood, a wooded he area. People... He wanted them to be identified at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, not necessarily linked to him, but I think he wanted that and anything to do with them out of the house. And when we searched the house, I wasn't a big part of the search. I think Detective Dan and Detective Dave were. There was everything from documents to bank statements to all kinds. He had gone through the house and money, checks, last will and testament. Yeah, and he had left post-it note reminders about what he did on certain days, just randomly placed throughout the house and bedrooms. It was an odd scene. One specific note that I remember photographing, and it was in what I believe is his bedroom, and we found two handguns and a rifle in in that room. He had this note, it was like a checklist, and I think number two on the checklist was, thank firearms instructor for making me a better shot. Like, he had this to-do list that he had to take care of, and one of the things was to thank the guy who taught him how to shoot. Which tells me there's more to the story about how he killed mom. And the reason I say that, he shot dad at point blank range. We recovered a bullet from dad's skull during the autopsy. I mean, you're not thinking your firearms instructor from shooting somebody at point blank range. Anybody can do that. From a distance, if you're wanting to kill your mom and you're 15, 20 feet down the hallway, you do that. That's what you're thanking your instructor for. One thing I forgot to mention, and you guys learned a little bit of this at the search, we recovered two uh, dead animals from the house. Initially, uh, a cat was found in a shed out back, and that was transported to the morgue along with mom and dad. So, Because the cat had been executed? or he, he had killed the cat as well. And the pathologist examined the cat for cause of death, and that's another factor in these cases. You know, you don't minimize the fact that somebody killed an animal. That's, I mean, that's the stuff that builds up to serial killers. You hear the stories about Jeffrey Dahmer killing animals when he was a kid. Yes. It shows that depraved indifference right there. It's interesting to note that cat that was bundled up and found in the shed out back. Dan and I were out front just doing scene security in the middle of these two days that we had searched this house. And so I think it was the second day that we're searching this house. And at some point, somebody disturbed this cat or opened the plastic bin that this cat was in because we're out in the front yard and there's just a wave of odor that comes over the house and kind of sweeps by us. And we both had the same look on our face. Somebody just found something else that's dead. And so we walked around back to the back of the house and Detective Allen at the time had gone through this shed and located another item. We didn't know what it was. We could see hair hanging out that was kind of reddish, sandy blonde, and it was packed up in a fleece blanket with duct tape all around it. And so it's just this ball of smelly, hairy mess when we unwrapped it. Were you relieved it wasn't a head? I honestly, after seeing Catherine, the way he taped her head, I mean... Her head looked too symmetrical. It looked to me, I was like, I hope that's not a ball under there that he just put where the head would be. And that now we found the head in the backyard. Because I had looked at her photo before and I saw her hair color and I looked at this bundled up, taped up blanket and I was like, that's the same hair color as mom. I hope this isn't her head. It was a cat. Who undid the tape? I think we both— It took a few of us. Yeah. And mind you, we're in the middle of like a heat wave. It's in a 90-degree range in early summer, and the odor is just so overwhelming that you're trying not to gag, and you're trying to like do it as quickly but as precisely as you can, and your gag reflex is going—you feel like you're going to vomit while you're doing it. It's horrible. 
There was some talk that he was going to throw them in the water. Yeah, take them out in the river somewhere, out in the woods, and dump them. So I think he wanted to minimize the amount of evidence left behind in the freezer. If he was going to keep that freezer, he sure as heck didn't want mom and dad's blood in there. That would link him to a murder. Did he ever talk more about what happened and why he did it? No, he didn't. Um, you know, he had articulated to me at the hospital he was trying to kill himself between the heroin, slitting his wrist, and trying to shoot himself in the head. He even articulated as much to the hospital staff. So when we brought him to the jail, we told the folks at the jail, hey, this guy is suicidal. Keep a close eye on him. He's a murder suspect. Killed his parents. Let's keep a close eye on him. So he was placed on what's called a suicide watch at the jail, and he remained in that suicide watch for a couple days. And describe that for us. Essentially, there's different levels, depending on how active you're trying to kill yourself. If you just make a statement, I want to die, I just want to die, I want to kill myself, and don't take action, you'll be placed on a watch to where you're in your single cell area at the jail, and every 30 minutes, a jail officer or deputy would go by and check on you, and not just look in the window and peer in, but make some kind of contact with you every 30 minutes to make sure you're still alive, make sure you're breathing, talking, no wounds. In this instance, he was put on a 15-minute, I believe, or even a five-minute suicide watch at a certain point because of the actions he had taken to where he was pretty much under observation all the time. They would constantly check on him. It wasn't an hourly check. It was regular. Well, after a few days, he had uh, convinced staff of the jail, and it's not just police officer or deputy staff. They have mental health people there. And they speak with the inmates. And he had convinced them, hey, I'm not suicidal anymore. I'm good to go. So they took him off the suicide watch. And it's probably seven days after the murder, I'm eating lunch. And I got a call from commander at the jail saying, hey, that guy you brought in tried to hang himself today. And we found him. He was unresponsive and brought him to the hospital. And he's on life support. <sighs> he successfully hung himself. And it's it's a common thing to do in jails. People think you need some kind of tall thing to hang from, and people get very creative. You can tie to a doorknob or a handle of some sort and lay on the floor if you really are committed to doing that. Sure. So that's what he had done. And he remained in the hospital on life support for another, maybe another day at the most, and then he ended up dying at the hospital. We're never able to get some of those questions answered, more motive questions or the shaved head or some of the oddities of that case really answered. And presuming if you're on suicide watch, they take things from you that you could, you know, hang yourself with. And those things had been removed while he was on the suicide watch. If you're that committed, they give you no clothes and you have a suicide blanket. And it's just this really thick, it's probably a two inch thick blanket that's sewn together that you can't tie into a knot. You can't tie into things, but you are able to stay warm and cover yourself. Mm. But once he convinced staff that he's no longer suicidal, I see. he earned things back like his clothes. And that's all it takes for somebody that's committed to killing themselves. Um, pair of pants is all it took. Small Town Dicks is produced by Zibby Allen and Yardley Smith for Paperclip Limited, with editing from Logan Heftel and Yardley and Zibby. Music for the show was composed by John Forrest. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever else you like to listen to your podcasts. And follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Small Town Dicks. Also, visit our website, smalltowndicks.com, for more information and to leave questions and comments for the team. <laughs>